Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. As a coach and scholar, I often say that when you sit with warriors, the conversation is different. Paulo Coelho, author of one of my favorite books, The Alchemist, has said this, quote, The most important thing in all human relationships is conversation. But people don't talk anymore. They don't sit down to talk and listen. They go to the theater, the cinema, watch television, listen to the radio, read books, but they almost never talk. If we want to change the world, we have to go back to a time when warriors would gather around a fire and tell their stories, end quote. Sitting with warriors, having the crucial conversations is so important. And research overwhelmingly shows that mentors, sponsors, and coaches are truly important in our advancement. We all need both challenge and support to thrive in our careers, in our lives, certainly, But we also know that as women, we face unique biases and challenges that make a career tribe even more important. There is power in the tribe. And I am very excited to talk about this today with my guest, Alicia Jabbar. Alicia is a coach and facilitator who's designed and delivered more than 100 women's leadership programs to dozens of organizations and the public. Her unconventional approach to women's leadership acknowledges the impact of systemic oppression in the design and delivery of programs. So you can see why it was so important for me to have her on the Advancing Women podcast. I am so excited to sit with a true warrior today and have this conversation. Welcome, Alicia. Alicia. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. And one thing about your coaching that really struck me was this. You said that when women connect in groups, they experience a sense of validation and inspiration that breaks down the barriers, limiting their fully expressed leadership in the world. And I love that. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, Kimberly, in listening to your podcast, one of the things that I hear you say is, it's not you, but it is your problem. Yeah, it's not your fault, but it is your problem. It's not your fault, but it is your problem. And there's this uh, way when women are out in their day-to-day of their careers, it's easy to feel like it's your fault. If only there was something you were doing differently or better or more buttoned up or more perfectly, then you wouldn't be faced with whatever scenario is really wearing on you. And when I bring groups of women together to have an honest conversation about their experience, that veil is lifted pretty quickly. When you see how widespread it is between women, it really uh, highlights it's not your fault. It is part of the systemic influences that dominate corporate culture today. And then when that veil is lifted, women can kind of sit alongside of each other and say, if this is so, then what? That's so important because... There's this kind of mindset that we either have to suck it up and what good does it do to quote unquote complain or that we can sit here and be victims. And that is really a false premise because we do not have to own the fault or the flaw to still advance and thrive. We don't, absolutely don't need to carry the weight of that on our shoulders. So I love what you say about lifting that veil. That's absolutely a critical difference. It may seem like semantics. It makes all the difference in the world. A hundred percent. I find that some of the resistance to actually acknowledging it or feeling like it's complaining is because we don't know what to do with it. 
and we get wisdom and inspiration from being in conversation with other women. Or there's a lot of grief around all the warriorness leading up to this point. And that's a lot to hold yourself. And again, a group container allows space for that to be held, not just by you, but by other women who share your experience. I couldn't agree more. We are often fed that steady diet of you have every opportunity and you are the one getting in your own way. I think there can even be a bit of disillusionment when you've bought in to the meritocracy narrative and you've done all the things and then some, and then you realize that the promised results aren't there. And so you're sitting there scratching your head, trying to understand why, when you've accepted the set of standards and criteria that's been put in front of you and it's not working out, you feel broken or that there's some piece that's missing. But then you sit with other women who you see their brilliance and you can step outside of yourself and say, I don't know about me here, but I know that that is a woman who deserves to have advanced. This is a person who should have reaped the rewards of all of that hard work and they're not. And so that makes it a little bit easier for me to see the forest for the trees. Right. There's also this element of a lot of when you do all the things you're following guidelines that are part of a system that was designed without you. And if you play by those rules, it's unsurprising that they don't serve you because they were never really designed to serve you. Yeah. And you can kind of stuff those parts of yourself that, you know, would inherently be your natural leadership style for so long. And then the costs start to rise. Right. This urge to bring parts of yourself forward that you haven't done yet. And then there's this, well, I I didn't have any of those to get here. So how do I incorporate them now to get where I want to go next? There's this real wrestling with, can I, will it work? Is there permission? Am I alone in this? And a lot of that goes away again in a group. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about this. Tell me a little bit about your process and how you connect women and groups together in a more communal way to acknowledge, address, and transcend some of these things that we're talking about. So the first step of any process that I go through is an unlearning process. And essentially what this is, is early in your life and your career, it's easier to follow other people's directions. And at some point that either stops working or it comes at a really high cost because you've left parts of yourself behind. So this unlearning process is identifying our conditioned responses that are often borrowed or inherited from the systems in power, which are not typically women, and how they diminish your leadership. And it's about reversing the tendency to look outside of yourself for answers. I think the point you make about unlearning is critical. Because so much of professional development is what you need to fix or what you need to learn. And you are spot on that it is unlearning because we are socially conditioned, especially as women, based on a system of descriptive bias that exists for men and women in terms of what women are like or should be like and what men are like or should be like, and then what leaders are like and should be like. And so we're always on this tightrope of, well, how do I assimilate to the system that is successful and leads to leadership, which has historically been a patriarchal male-dominated system without losing, as you've mentioned, who we are as people, but also 
experiencing the backlash that often comes when we behave in ways that are not aligned with traditional biases or the traditional stereotypes of what a woman should be like. So I think that unlearning of a lifetime of social conditioning is such a crucial first step. Absolutely. And it's not a part of a lot of women's leadership programs. Unfortunately, the idea behind too many programs and professional development initiatives for women, and that's why I love your program, are grounded in the false premise that women are somehow broken or deficit. So they come from a deficit mindset, and you're talking about an abundance mindset. And so I'm so excited to talk about how your program does that, how women together learn how to first go through this deconditioning, I guess you could put it, but also learn how to build that tribe, that set of supportive women that can help them through the process. Yeah. I mean, from a real pragmatic standpoint, which I know you talk about on your podcast, Kimberly, if women are conditioned to take care of others before they take care of themselves, that our value comes through other people's happiness. And then we're put in a senior position where change management is in front of us. Anything we do on initial implementation is going to go against that conditioning. Absolutely. When you're the person who smooths out the social relationships so that everyone feels comfortable all the time, that certainly goes against change. Change is uncomfortable. We know that. But if on a subconscious level and sometimes on a conscious level, we expect women to be diffusing conflict and to be making everyone feel more comfortable, yet we need people who can implement change, those things are in conflict. And you get into one of those damned if you do, doomed if you don't type situations. And it's beneficial for women to understand what's so hard about some of what's expected at senior levels for them based on all of that conditioning. It's not the complaining, but it's the acknowledgement of, right, of what I'm about to do, this chaos I'm going to create, the territory where I don't have all the answers, I can't answer every single um, hesitation from every single person within the organization right away. And that's going to be really hard because I've been told my entire life that my role is to have the answers and smooth it over. Yeah, that's really such an important part of the process. If we go into it with this false sense of security in the best practice advice that is often given to us without funneling that through the very real gender bias, unconscious bias and barriers that exist, we run the risk of then being surprised. So forewarned is forearmed. It's the idea of mental contrasting. We can tell ourselves that everything's going to be great, um, but you can't will away injustice and inequity. You have to face it head on, the reality that you're going to have a different experience and being prepared for that experience is critical. It's not about complaining. It's about preparation. It's about being ready. And about equipping yourself when you hit that barrier, which is bound to come. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong or your idea is wrong or what you're trying to implement is wrong, or even that your approach is wrong. Yeah, that's really so important to say, even though I'm hearing this feedback, I'm able to distinguish whether your feedback is grounded in the truth of who I am and what I'm doing, or is it grounded in this unconscious bias? And it does help a little bit. And one of the things I always ask 
when I work with a client and I'm sure you do something similar, when they get feedback is pause and ask yourself, is it true? Sometimes we go right into the conditioned apology mode and I better fix that if I want to get ahead. Oh, you're saying I'm emotional. I've got to now own that, apologize for it and fix it. When what you're talking about is pausing and saying, no, you're going to acknowledge what's actually happening here. Right. I mean, leadership is about having choice. Taking everybody's directions and running circles around yourself is actually not being a choice. And that's directly counter to our conditioning. So again, going back to your, you know, it's easier to hold those choices as choices when you're not alone in it, whether or not you're supported in group program with women who are having similar experiences or with a coach or a sponsor or a mentor who's shared some of your experience. So what is the kind of big takeaways that they get, the eureka moments, if you will, when you are working with clients? Yeah, we have a big eureka moment. At the initiation of many of my programs, I have women review their life today. It can be either just their career or their life. And they pick out pivotal moments where they've had a real internal change. Who they were before this moment is different than who they were after this moment. And there's some reason for that. Um, And so we hold that. And then at some point when we start to dig up the conditioning of women in society, they realize in contrast, almost all of those pivotal moments are in direct contradiction to their conditioning. Wow, that's powerful. Which means that if you want to continue to transform or to feel your own growth and advancement, all of those moments that are going to do that are going to require you wrestling with some of the ways that you've been conditioned as a woman. And that just is. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you've done a great job kind of taking us through how this process is very validating, but you also talk about inspiration. So now let's talk a little bit about women and the organizations you work with finding inspiration then from the scenarios that you put them in and the conversations you have. Yeah. The second part of my framework is this restore, restore the nature of who you are. Once you've unlearned some of that conditioning, then there's a almost like a fresh eye to answer some of these big questions. Like, you know, what's the impact that I want to have in the world? Who am I? What makes me tick? What do I have to contribute? It's almost like watching a child's joy in answering those questions for themselves for the first time, real honestly, without some of the weight and the background of the conditioning. Yes. And even being given permission, you actually do have a right to think about yourself and your purpose because we have been conditioned to prioritize others. And so part of what you're talking about here is a real prioritization and a moment of saying, I'm going to just sit and think about what I want and what I'm going through and what my goals are. That's a really important point. And when you're in a conversation with a woman who kind of drops a little dream or a little vision for themselves and they're holding it as like the biggest thing in the world and somebody else says, oh, just that. It's like, oh my gosh, I can go bigger. You can go bigger. Like there's this kind of natural bounce off energy of what we're asking for is not that big of a deal. Right. Possibility when you talk with other people who say the world may tell you it's impossible for you or at least make you feel that way, but it is possible. I'm doing it. And I think everyone gets that in any community. If you're a runner and you're in a community of runners, then that's what you give each other. And I love so much the abundance of it because we do, unfortunately, hear this narrative of Queen Bee or 
mean girls are not supportive. And what you're talking about is more aligned with what the reality is of women, which is how do we help each other? How do we lift each other? How do we together rise? Because we have to do so despite a host of unfair, but very real inequities and an unlevel playing field that just doesn't serve us. So we've got to be there to help each other. Yeah. If we're willing to be in conversation and to be real with what our experience actually is and to hold that that's not wrong, or it doesn't mean that we're broken. Absolutely. So one of the things that I love that you say about your work is that you quote, free people of stagnant energy. We talk a little bit about that and how you do that. Yeah. That's kind of the three-part framework that we just touched on. The freeing stagnant energy comes from unlearning some of those conditioned responses and restoring people's to nature's energy is about then having the bright eyed view of what are the answers to those questions? What are my strengths? What do I contribute? What do I want? And it's really coming back to the part of you who had that knowing before all the conditioning got layered on top. So I thought that was interesting too, along with the quote of individuals hold the key to their own liberation. Yeah. I mean, in the most pragmatic sense, trying to change other people leads to a lot of suffering. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And yes, the systems really need to change. And women have been waiting a really long time for the systems to change. So the fantasy of just waiting and hoping that something outside of ourselves shifts puts you in a really power down position. I couldn't agree more. There is still a broken pipeline between the middle and those top, top levels. And I know a lot of the work you do is with women in those C-suite, top-level positions of power, pay, and prestige, or in the ascent to those who have bought into perhaps the meritocratous fallacy that if they do all the things and work twice as hard, it's all going to come together, and then are sitting there saying, you know what, I'm, I'm still stuck. So I wondered if you could talk about how you help women who are navigating that only, they're the only person at the highest level, or they would be the only person to move into that role and how that's a little bit of a unique situation. Yeah. I love what you said in the question around the meritocracy aspect of it. There is an inherent, ugh, that happens when a woman does get hired or promoted into an executive role or a very senior role where there's an assumption that once you're in that highest level of power, you won't be met with a bias. If only I can get there, then this whole navigation system is going to disappear and it doesn't. Right. Two things happen. Women wobble on their own point of view, perspective, expertise, all the things they got hired to because it's not immediately received and then they abandon it. Or many of the people they're working with have not had a woman in that seat or at that table, and they don't know what to do. And there's them figuring it out and you figuring it out. And when women take it on as them being the problem, then things get really rocky. So a lot of it at that high level of support is really holding the tension of that reality, holding them in their knowledge and power, building trust that supersedes the doubt or recovery, you know, when the doubt hits or when the resistance comes and staying grounded in their vision and what they're there to do, which is hard to do alone. Yeah. It's such a, it is. And it's such an important point because if 
you get promoted to that top level, what I have learned in my DEI advocacy and, and roles I've been in, there's almost this kind of dismissal then that there's a problem anymore, that you being in that role is evidence that there is no longer a bias or an issue in this organization. And so, haha, there you go. Don't tell us we've got biases because we don't, because if we did, how would we then have you in this role? And that can be gaslighting to women who don't have the benefit of a system, a group like yours, the coaching that helps you to understand that, no, that actually isn't proof that you've gotten to the summit just because you've gotten the promotion. And to trust that that is your experience and those dynamics are at play, even when your peers can't validate you. Right. I think you're spot on that if we're waiting for the world to have a eureka moment and validate and say, you're right, it has been unfair and it's not a meritocracy, that's probably not anywhere in the very near future. Believing the narrative that it is you or that you are the problem is actually colluding with the systems. It is buying into their narrative and further advancing all of the systemic power. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And I'd like you to talk about the group or the coaching importance in terms of a consistent level of messaging creating that group and that warrior tribe and that coaching type of environment to to help sustain you for the long haul. Yeah, it really depends on whether or not I design and deliver a program to live inside of an organization or what happens in my public programs. In an organization, when you run enough cohorts of a small group program, let's say, you know, 24, 36 women per program, and then you're starting to hit in the hundreds of women, it's about creating continued connection points for women within your organization so that they continue to rebalance and remind each other about the heart of these women, what they have to offer the leadership and what the organization needs and how they need to be expressed in their leadership in order to do their work successfully or to have good impact. When I originally started developing group programs about a decade ago, I purposely wanted to create programs for the public because if I had Three women who came from 15 different organizations, that is a really large network effect. Absolutely. I think what you're saying is so important. Once you learn how much value there is in the lived experience of other women, that crew, that tribe of people there consistently, or even in a moment to fall back on it and say, you know, I'm in my job right now. I'm feeling a lot of resistance. I find myself feeling like I'm owning the blame or I'm in some way flawed. And I want to try to interrupt that. So now how do I implement strategies that actually serve me? Yeah. I mean, you talk about, you know, part of why you call the women you serve warriors is because they all have strategies and experience. So it's almost like creating a pool of all of those strategies. And it's like, who and what do I want to draw from? Because most of it has already been implemented by one of us at some point in time. I often say to people, if we don't stop and take a breath, we don't realize when you got to that level, do you really know how badass you are and how many times you had to overcome a million different obstacles, but you just dug in and did it? If you are a woman and you are anywhere near that top level, you have absolutely overcome 
biases and barriers, 100%. It is foundational to our organizations. There is this very well-documented in the research bias, gender stereotypes that we all carry with us. And there are very real barriers. And yet here we are, we persist, right? And I talk a lot about the persisterhood. This is the ultimate persisterhood. Yeah. There's two other points that I think are really important. One, I had heard you talk about how the research doesn't uphold the queen bee. We have had countless women take some of the core elements of our program and pass it on to the female leaders who report to them to their daughters, to their teenagers. It's like once they've touched into some of this, they want to spread it. So they're creating their own community, even that exists outside of the women in the program by just passing along some of the information. I love what you say about even their daughters, because as a professor, when I talk to young women, I can be very concerned when they believe that we've reached the summit and they're not going to have any problems. And Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer and say, oh man, you think you're going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Boy, let me tell you, that's not what it's about. I know what comes later. I know that you're going to come back and say, whoa, what happened? And start to internalize that. And I don't want that for these younger generations. So what you're saying, even about sharing that with the next generation of leaders when we're at the top or wherever we are in the pipeline is such a crucial point. The importance of the communal experience of women in transcending and thriving, very difficult, unfair and inequitable barriers, a very unlevel playing field, and how powerful that can be when you look at it from that perspective. We're also talking about bias that exists outside of us as women. You know, there's also the bias that we internalize. For example, female perfectionism, which is the root of often looking at female leaders ahead of us and kind of critiquing them. It's like we're critiquing them because we're critiquing ourselves. Yeah, that's partly true. But I always say it's often grounded in a level of conditioning. So, for example, we know that when a woman fails, or falls, a few things happen. First of all, the research is clear on this. Women's mistakes are noticed. They are seen as worse and they're remembered longer. And we know that they are then seen as indicative of the entire group. So when a man falls short in a leadership role, you don't hear people saying, well, we tried a man, it didn't work out. But you do hear that with women. So when you start combining all of the social conditioning that says, if you make a mistake, you're going to be held to a higher standard, you're going to suffer a professional capital hit, and it's going to be remembered and called out when you go into that review. It's easy to say, don't be a perfectionist, but it's also easy to understand why women strive for that, right? So it's this whole complex system that we're acknowledging and interrupting. These are coping mechanisms to that social conditioning. Right. And as individual women who are watching this play out for another woman, we have the choice to not collude with some of that high mistake critique. Absolutely. Not joining the dialogue. I agree because I think one of the most powerful things you're talking about is we can be a part of creating the narrative. That narrative of, oh, wow, look at that big mistake certainly doesn't serve women. I use the analogy, if an airline has a plane crash, that's not good for other airlines, 
right? Any plane crash hurts all airlines because it scares people from travel. And that's the case with women. Any overly negative critique hurts all women. It just doesn't serve us. When one woman falls, unfortunately, it hurts all women. So there's nothing to gain from that and everything to gain from what you're talking about. You've got to say, I'm not going to be part of any narrative that's going to hurt chances for women to advance. Right. And we can look to the woman that falls and say, don't fall. But the more powerful thing in mass is for all the women watching the woman fall to say, I'm not going to call that a fall. Has to be allowed to make a mistake. I think you're so right. And just simple, pragmatic things like how do you hold other women up in meetings when they're responded to in a particular way? So if you see a person make a mistake, how do we pragmatically go in there and do the things that help to change the narrative? Or at a minimum, widen it. Absolutely. Widen the narrative. I love that. Yeah. You have a quote on your website, and it reminds me a little bit of what we're talking because we're talking about wrongdoing and mistakes. And you say, Rumi said it best, quote, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there end quote. Tell me why that resonates, what it means in terms of your why. Why is this so powerful for you? Yeah. I mean, that comes candidly from life experience. The quote is deeply personal to me. I'm an Iranian American. My dad is Iranian. Rumi is an Iranian poet. I have people in my life who, whose decisions have been on the wrong side of society standards. And I've personally learned the power of standing with someone outside of that paradigm of right and wrong. And in my own personal leadership, that's the single greatest thing that I have to hold myself to. Checking my tendency to right, wrong, everything and everyone. That is the course correction I need to continue to make. And as it relates to work, right, wrong is one of the pillars of conventional leadership that in my view is expiring. If you are not white and male, you're wrong and therefore you will never be right. And fiercely holding that alternative view or widening the narrative holds a lot of power from my perspective. That is so powerful, everything you just said. Because when we begin to understand that the blueprint for leadership ain't us, it should be more inclusive. And we like to say that it can be. But if we look at the traits and the expectations and what is valued it is very clear that that blueprint is not only not inclusive, but it lacks validity in terms of what should be valued in leadership. Not only widening the conversation of who can be in those roles, but redefining what we've always valued. I did an episode where I talked about this. Sometimes the traits that we prize and revere are the traits that lead to things like narcissism and negative ethical decision-making and turnover because people are burnt out and just miserable in their jobs. And there's all of these negative consequences. And so what you're saying about widening our conversation and our ideas, not just about what leadership looks like, but what the blueprint should even look like is a conversation that is such an important one that we need to be having. Or what the blueprint could look like. Yeah, the infinite possibility of that blueprint. I just love that. Yeah. So I have loved this conversation. We really talked about so many of the key things we need to be addressing if we really want 
to address inequity because as you said earlier, the change is simply not happening fast enough and we're nowhere near ready to stop having the conversations. So each week I end with a manifest statement or a key takeaway in terms of how what we're talking about manifests in our life pragmatically. I think it's so critical to get to the core, which is that despite women's advancement, we still remain underrepresented in those highest echelons of power, pay, and prestige, in those places where the blueprint tends to not favor us. And the data show that women are still on an unlevel playing field. There is gender inequity. There is unconscious gender bias, and it continues to keep far too many eminently qualified, ambitious, talented warrior women from reaching their full potential. So the importance of the tribe, the community, the support is paramount for us. Helen Keller famously said, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. And I love that idea that together we rise. And I love the work you're doing and the impact you're having, Alicia. As you so poignantly said, let's experience that sense of validation and inspiration that comes when we meet together as a community. And I'm just so grateful for the work you do and for having you here today. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me, Kimberly. Now, if people want to find you and the excellent coaching you provide, both corporate and personal initiatives, what's the best way for them to find you? The best way to find me is on my website, aliciajabar.com. And beginning in November, I am going to be leading a free monthly women's leadership collective. We're kicking off in November with the topic of boundaries. So you can find that uh, aliciajabar.com women's leadership collective. That's wonderful. I think women should treat themselves to some of the wonderful things that you're offering. And I will, again, include everything in the notes and encourage people to check out your resources. Thanks so much, Kimberly. Thank you. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback. So please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.